Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And Matt, we've had another interesting week in the world of Bitcoin. We had a major bipartisan bill introduced in the United States Senate and a ban of sorts in New York, plus some more adoption news this week from Chipotle, Oman, Kenya, Bermuda, and Brazil. But first, let's start with some news on the money from the crypto industry that is going to lobbying politicians, which I thought was really interesting. So we can see on the the chart that you have up there that, well, one, it says we've had a, a 5,200% surge in U.S. giving by I'm going to call it crypto firms. So what I thought was interesting here was that the crypto companies are spending about 24 million a year or spent 24 million this year. 26 million, actually. 26 million lobbying. And uh, the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, only spent about 18 to 20 million. And if we look at... Go ahead. I was going to say, you know... It's a good headline with the 5,200%, but, you know, it's also worth noting that you're talking about a $25.5 million increase. Basically went from five, you know, 500 grand to 26 million uh, in 15 months. Yes. And if we take a look at the global landscape, we see that the crypto industry is spending more than the defense industry more than big pharma and more than big tech, which makes it, according to this chart, the second biggest player next to the investment industry, which is just, I guess, the the 800-pound gorilla of lobbying. But what this does mean is that there is a lot of money flowing to politicians. And my belief is that when you have that kind of money flowing to politicians, you are going to get some favorable legislation. Absolutely. I think that this really shows that. Um, and look, the, the financial sector uh, donations have always been far and away the biggest in the political arena. Uh, you know, when you hear about the fact that Wall Street uh, heavily supports politicians, that's what they mean. They are, by and large, the largest supporter of politicians. So um, you can almost exclude them from the conversation. Um, except for the fact that, uh, you know, you've got now the digital asset side of the investment world uh, really supporting a lot of these politicians as well. Yeah, this is, I, I think if we take a step back and and look at this, this is really pretty stunning and pretty shocking. And I think it fits into the narrative of what we see happening in this space, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And that will actually lead us to the the next really, really, really huge story, which is that uh, Senators Lummis and Gillibrand introduce a bipartisan bill, essentially coming up with regulation for Bitcoin, other digital assets, and stable coins. Mm-hmm. 
And there were a number of things in this bill that we thought were pretty interesting. What what struck you most about what they introduced here? Um, I, I think there's a few things that are worth discussing um, that are in the bill. But um, I guess there were really three big takeaways that I had. The first one is that um, it seems that these assets, if they were to be regulated under this bill, they would fall under the commodities futures regulation um, entity, not the SEC, uh, which means that they're treating it more like gold or other commodities versus actual securities. Um, I think there's still a lot of discussion to be had around you know, certain types of tokens, whether or not they're actually securities, but I don't think it's really trying to get into that level of nuance in this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first one. The second one that really struck me was um, some of the proposals around mining. Um, you know, it, it was a really significant idea that if you are a miner of cryptocurrency, and you know, for purposes of this show, I'm just going to say if you're mining Bitcoin, um, then this bill would make it to where the the assets that you received as part of your mining efforts would not be taxable until you actually dispose of that asset. So, you know, the, the analogy there using gold as an example is that today, if you mine gold and you own that gold as a gold miner, you don't pay tax on the income you receive for selling that gold until you sell it. Conversely, with Bitcoin today, if you're mining and you receive Bitcoin as a reward for your mining efforts, then that is considered a taxable income stream and that's taxed under ordinary income. What this bill would do would say that Bitcoin mining rewards would only be taxable if you dispose of those coins after you mine them. So it allows miners to hold their Bitcoin and not have to worry about paying tax on it until they uh sell it or otherwise dispose of it. Yeah, I think that that's similar to when I was thinking about that. I think it's similar to if you were to, let's say, build a property. Instead of mining Bitcoin, you're going to build a property. You're going to buy a piece of land. You're going to buy all these supplies. You're going to put time and effort into building the structure. You're not going to be taxed on that structure until you go to dispose of it. You're going to have some kind of basis in it. And when you go to dispose of it, then you'll be taxed on it. So I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. I mean, there was, there was nothing in this bill that I thought was weird or it, it almost seemed just like a bit of a common sense bill. Uh, and so that, that was one of those elements where uh, if miners right now are being taxed as ordinary income, uh, that's probably something that should be changed. I can see the argument for it, but I, I think it makes more sense to, to treat it, uh, like gold mining or like uh, real estate. Sure. If you're not receiving an, an immediate economic benefit from it, then it's not logical that you would then have view that as a taxable income stream. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other uh, piece that I thought was interesting um, and which is in the headline here is that it will take away any taxable event for transactions that are less than $200. Um, I think there's still some clarity that we need around that as far as how do you, mm-hmm determine what the transaction size is because there's some language around aggregating transactions. So if you have related transactions 
Um, you know, you can't just break them up into smaller pieces to avoid the tax. Uh, that's part of the, the legislation that's being proposed. But at the same time, um, it does kind of put a stake in the ground to say, look, if you want to go out and use, you know, Bitcoin to buy groceries or gas or normal everyday purchases, you're not going to have a taxable event in that case. And I think what that does is it really gives more of an incentive for using it as a medium of exchange as opposed to just holding it as an investment. But but with that, and I know this, um, there's some debate on exactly what that, uh, that language says in the bill of being able to buy things for less than $200. But it seems that this would cover the concept of can you use Bitcoin to buy a coffee? So maybe you get up and you go for a coffee in the morning and your coffee is $5 and you can use Bitcoin to buy that and you can pay for your lunch. That says $20. You can pay for your lunch with Bitcoin and maybe you have some other kind of incidental, maybe you go buy some gas that day or, well, that, that could be over $200 with today's gas prices, right. but uh, assuming it's not, um, that you can you can do a lot of the transactions. I mean, most of my transactions on a daily basis are less than $200. Absolutely. But I also think that, I think that getting into the weeds on this bill might be the wrong way to look at it. Uh, certainly, knowing that there's nothing in there that would be particularly harmful is good to know. And there was nothing on here that was harmful. It's just sort of cleaning up uh, areas where people want clarity. And, and I don't think they put anything in there that was really shocking to anybody. Maybe the biggest thing that came out of there was who was going to be regulating what, that the SEC would regulate digital assets classified as securities where the CFTC would be in charge of overseeing those that are are deemed to be a commodity like bitcoin so mm -hmm. uh do you know if ethereum would be deemed a commodity or a security um i don't know i i think that there's certainly some uh reasonable debate on both sides of that argument but mm -hmm. um i don't know based on the text of the bill where it lands but i think the initial text of the bill says that it that all of it is going to be regulated by the CFTC as opposed to the SEC. Mm -hmm. And they have a number of things on there where like the exchanges will have to pay the CFTC a fee. And there was something else in the bill where they're going to study the power consumption of digital assets. And uh, there was also something as far as retirement planning and 401ks. Mm -hmm. But I think that the bigger thing with the bill is that I, this bill is very unlikely to pass. I mean, it's right now, today is June 7, 2022. We have a midterm election in the United States in November, which I think is what, about five months away. Mm -hmm. And this bill has to go through, I think they said four committees, including the agriculture committee. I thought that was kind of interesting. Don't so yeah, there's, there are four committees that it has to go through and senators Lummis and Gillibrand are only on two of the four committees mm. um, between them. So it's not like they can really shepherd the thing through committee. Um, but to your point, with midterms coming in less than six months, I think there's virtually no chance that this thing gets passed before the end of the year. And depending on what happens in November, 
and you know what the landscape looks like six months from now um you know maybe something could happen but you know i viewed this more as a stake in the ground and a conversation starter in a way um way more than it was a piece of legislation that either of the senators on both sides of the aisle um you know intended or expected to to be successful agreed i think that's that's probably the best analysis that i've heard of it but i also think that so much of the conversation let's say between 2011 and 2021 we'll use that that 10 year block was a so much of the conversation had to do with will the government ban it we used to hear a lot of that even 2020 or i'm sorry 2021 we heard a lot about the government may ban it or india's banning it or russia's banning it or china's banning it we heard a lot of this concept of they're going to ban it. I even heard some of the, I'm going to call them the hedge fund superstars, these guys that that run these enormous hedge funds. I don't want to name names. Who mm-hmm. said if it becomes too successful, the government will just ban it. And I think what this bill shows, coupled with the money that's going to the politicians, is that there's not going to be any banning of it. There might be elements that would be banned. I could see that, and we're going to get into that in the the, the next uh, segment. But I, I think that this bill shows that this isn't going away, that the United States has got to come up with some kind of legislation to bless this new, I'm going to call it a creation, if you want to call it an asset class, that's fine. But this is a new thing for the world. It's an innovation. And a new innovation. There you go. Perfect. And this shows that it's not being banned. Now, we ran into Senator Lummis in Miami, and we asked her, mm-hmm. as I asked almost everyone at the, the, the conference, the same question, have we gone past the, ba- the part where the government can actually ban it? And I heard different answers from everyone I asked that weekend. I heard answers from after 2013, it was too late for the government to ban it. But when I asked uh, Senator Lummis, her response was, yes, it, it's, it's past the point where the government can ban it. And then the follow-up question was, well, when did that happen? And her response was, in the past year. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think that when that actually happened, doesn't really matter. I don't think it'd be very difficult to prove when the actual date was. But the reality is, is that I think that we can safely, as much as you could ever safely say something when the government's involved, that we move past that phase and that banning is not a thing. Now, regardless of whether this bill passes or doesn't pass, and it's not going to pass. I mean, I've I think they're probably going to chop it up into multiple bills, but I'm not a political expert in any way. So I don't know, and I'm not certainly not uh, very familiar with the process of passing uh, some kind of sweeping legislation like this. But I do think that it sends a signal to both, I would say, the U.S. politicians and the U.S. government, but also a worldwide signal that if you see that the U.S. is introducing something like this, it is a signal that these digital assets 
are becoming a permanent part of our lives. The, this innovation isn't going away. This isn't something that you can easily get rid of. And so I'm curious to see what this does in the next six months from now, regardless of the bill passing or not passing, what it does to other countries and what they're going to do with this. Because let's just say that I was in the German government. And obviously this news is going to hit worldwide and you see, okay, the U S and, and this is bipartisan. That's something that should be mentioned. We have a Republic. Ahead. Yeah. Th- that was actually my next comment is that I think one of the key points here is that how many proposed pieces of legislation are bipartisan these days and the level of division between the parties is so stark that it's almost impossible to imagine Republicans and Democrats coming together on pretty much any issue. So the fact that you've got, you know, Senator Lummis from Wyoming, which I think is a pretty red state, um, and Senator Gillibrand from New York, which is a very blue state, um, you know, coming together to put this in place, um, I think sends a message. It's, it, and again, you know, whether or not they have any expectation that this thing is going to go beyond the current draft, I don't know. But even the fact that they're able to publish it together is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable given the just general lack of, of uh, friendliness between the parties right now. Yeah, agreed. And also, it doesn't hurt that there's mountains of money being sent in from the lobbyists now. So the Bitcoin, or not the Bitcoin, the, the quote crypto lobby is, according to the chart, the number two lobby out there. And so having a, you, you almost have a sender from one of the reddest states and a sender from one of the bluest states. I mean, they're, they're pretty polarized, those two states. Wyoming and New York don't have a whole lot in common. Uh, and neither do the senders, for that matter. So uh, I think this is, regardless of what happens with this one, something is coming. The combination of money and uh, a bipartisan bill will produce something in the future. Where I see some issues from this is possibly from the SEC, because the SEC loses power with this bill, in my opinion. And CFTC gains it, and government entities do not like to lose power in any way. So, you know, who knows what pressure will come in there. But I, I think this bill is an enormous, enormous milestone in the the history of digital assets. I would certainly agree with that. And, and I think that, you know, on one hand, we can agree that this is not going to pass in the form that it's been written. But I think we could probably also agree that I would say within the next election cycle, the next you know three to four years, you're going to see something very definitive happen. It's it's inevitable, in my opinion. It is, and and as the uh, you know right now the, the the quote crypto market is is certainly not at its peak, but it will not stay there for long. There are cycles involved, and as the people in that industry uh, have more money. And as you, you're seeing more and more large uh, corporate entities getting involved in the space, 
they're going to continue to lobby. There's not going to be any shortage of lobbying for, for the politicians. So maybe you could, you, you know, some argument you made that, you know, in some ways the, the crypto space is similar to the investment space or the wall street space. And I could see, I could see this getting to 50 million for 2023, then instead of spending 25 million or 26 million for 2022, they just double it. I mean, $50 million. Especially if we see a rebound in the in the price of digital assets. Particularly if we see that. But it's coming. Regardless, it's coming. And and one last thing on that, Bill, before we move on, is that it also included provisions for stable coins. Mm-hmm. And I think the provisions, I think that was probably one of the best things to protect the consumer, was that if you buy a stable coin, that they, that they have to be able to back it up dollar for dollar with what you're right. buying. You need to be able to uh, redeem those stable coins immediately without any questions because they're fully reserved by whatever fiat currency they're pegged to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, the next government story, which is a step in the wrong direction. Yeah, this is going the other way, um, which is uh, New York has placed a moratorium on non-renewal Bitcoin mining. It's a two-year moratorium, um, and uh, this passed by a pretty big majority in the in the New York uh, legislature. And what it essentially says is that they're not accepting, uh, you know, applications for permits to use energy to mine Bitcoin if that energy is not renewable. Mm-hmm. Now, all the people who are mining it there already are grandfathered in. Correct. So this is just for new permits. I, I, I'll tell you, I think this is, I think this was, this shows the, the ignorance of the politicians. And what I mean by that is, let's just say that you are a, let's say you own a hat company. Your company makes hats and you've made a fortune doing this, you know, you're worth $500 million and you sell your hat company and you want something else to do and you'd like to give back and you decide to go into politics and you get elected and all of a sudden you're being asked to vote on a whole range of subjects, most of which you know nothing about. Maybe there's a bill that comes up with I'm going to make something up, how to handle uh, dirty linens in hospitals. I'm <laughs> sure there's been some regulation. For, I guarantee there's regulation on that. Sure. Or, or, or I'm going to call it uh, how they dispose of dirty needles in hospitals. And then the, the next thing that comes up may be something having to do with building bridges. And the next thing may come up, which has to do with uh, the tobacco industry. And so you're being asked to vote on a number of things that you really don't know anything about. And that's not a, that's not a knock on anybody. It's just that you, you, you can only know so much. There's no one that knows everything. And so what happens is that you get lobbyists that come in and they try and help you understand these issues. At least that's sort of the nice way to put it. And they explain to you why on one side of the issue, let's just say linens for hospitals, you should go to the, you know, you should do it using method number one. 
And then maybe a lobbyist comes in and said, no, the right thing to do is method number two. You really don't know what you're making a decision on. And if we're being intellectually honest, 99.9% .9 of the politicians do not read the bills they're voting on. Right. They don't even have time to do it. So it's, it's not, it's not, that's not shocking news. So the point is they really don't know what they're really voting on half the time. And I think that's really evident in this New York bill, because if you understand the energy uses and the energy benefits behind Bitcoin mining, which we're going to get into later because other people are doing the opposite of what New York's doing. Right. You realize that Bitcoin is great for, for the stability and the creation of energy. It's not. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to that energy. later in our, in, in our segment on adoption. There's some, some, you know, current, events that point to that as well. But um, in terms of this legislation, it really doesn't account for the fact that um, you, what you're talking about is the government coming in and saying what you can and cannot use energy for. And I think that over time, people are not going to be okay with that. And I saw uh, Nick Carter had a really um, interesting response to this, which is that, okay, well, now what happens when some other state that maybe leans politically different says, well, you can't use um, electrical energy to you know, power servers that are uh, running pornography or you know, something that you disagree with politically? Um, mm. Because this is really, they're turning it really into a, a bit of a climate change issue. And regardless of what you think about climate change or pornography, for that matter, um, the point is that in a free country, you should be able to purchase energy um, and use that energy for uh, any legal purpose. So it, it really kind of, to me, flies in the, in the face of freedom to be able to say, okay, well, you can only use electricity to do certain things. Um, I think that that's, you know, a pretty, a pretty dangerous path to walk down. It is. And, and when people hear Bitcoin mining, most people don't know what it means. All it really means is you're taking a computer and plugging it in. You're running a computer. You're running a computer. And there's also, there's also something with what, what does, what is Google's energy usage? What is Amazon what, what you know, what is Amazon Web Services? I've heard Amazon Web Services uses 2%. I don't know if this is correct, but 2% of the power in this country. And that sounds like it's it's certainly possible. They run an enormous number of computers. So the government coming in and saying what you can or cannot run on your computer or what you can, can or cannot use energy for to run your cool. computer is really pretty absurd. Yeah, and, and, and in addition to that, with, with the Amazon example, they don't disclose the, you know, the breakdown of their energy use. So we have no idea how much of that, you know, if it's 2%, if it's 1%, if it's half percent, it's still a significant amount of energy being taken off the grid by Amazon. And they don't disclose you know, how much of that is renewable, how much of that is, um, is just, you know, fossil fuel based. So, you know, they're basically putting regulations onto an industry that no other industry faces. Yeah. And I think once again, it's probably a situation where they're just ignorant 
They just don't know. It's not that they're, it's not that they're doing something. It's not that they're trying to, to do something right or wrong. Or it's not that I could give them a hard time for being right or wrong. I just think they just know nothing about it. They, I guarantee they haven't studied it. I guarantee they haven't looked into the benefits for Bitcoin mining to the, the energy grid. And so this is just another case of politicians and the government making laws for something of which they know nothing about. And then it won't work out and then they'll change it later and the world will move on. And the other thing is that, you know, if, if New York wants to ban it, who cares? What difference does yeah. it make? Bitcoin doesn't care. I mean, look what happened when China banned it. It, uh, it, it first of all, it didn't ever, when, it, when China banned it, which, you know, that was a more extreme ban than what New York is doing, but whatever, it's, it's analogous. When China banned it, first of all, it didn't go away. It was still there. Um, it never fully left. Um, and then it came back. And it's the type of thing where, you know, you can either, you can, if you want to have adoption, and this goes back to some of the things we were talking about in this proposed bill, if you want to see mass adoption, then you're better off keeping everything transparent and in the light, as opposed to forcing people to take it underground. And, you know, this may not be the most popular uh, view if you, you know, if you read Bitcoin Twitter a lot and you hear some of the more hardcore maximalists talking about it, you know, the idea that any government should have any say in what happens with Bitcoin is just the most egregious thing. I don't necessarily agree with that. You're never going to get to mass adoption if you're not able to make sure that, you know, that people are able to use it in a way that's, you know, good for society. And if you're forced to go underground with it, that's not good. I mean, realistically, this will do nothing. This will have just about, I mean, you want to talk about uh, wasting time and energy and effort. This is going to have about 0% impact on the world. It's going to have about the only, the only real impact it will have is hurting the state of New York. That's right. And the people in New York. Because the people in New York, I mean, there's... Um, and and then you have to then you have to wonder that anytime you do something which doesn't benefit somebody else and doesn't benefit yourself, you really have to ask yourself why you're doing that. And that is um, there's actually a, a, a very clever essay that was written, I think, in 1976 about the the five things that stupid people do. Yeah, and that's one of the just... things that stupid people do. You know, yeah. if there's something mm -hmm. that doesn't benefit you, it's one thing to to take someone's money and rob them. It benefits you. It doesn't benefit them. And smart people will do things that benefit that benefit others and also benefit themselves. Mm -hmm. And what stupid people do are are create situations that do not benefit somebody else and do not benefit themselves. And so that's what New York did here. And so, uh, based on that uh, logic, it's stupid. I would agree. Um, all right, with that, let's move on um, to our next graph here, which is uh, this is the uh, the percentage of bitcoins that have not moved in the past year. And uh, if you in the graph, um, if you're not 
watching, if you're listening, there's basically kind of an inverse correlation between the price of Bitcoin and how long it's been since the coins have moved. But what we're seeing right now is that 65% of Bitcoin has not moved in the past year, um, which is an all-time high for that statistic. And what that tells you is that people are holding it um, at a much higher rate than they have in the past. And, um, and you know, it, it, it's grown over time. Um, obviously, the more people just continue to accumulate and not sell, you'll see that percentage go up. But, uh, but yeah, we're at like, you know, 65%. Yeah, it's really significant. And when you study the chart or just look at it, you see that when the price of Bitcoin goes up, people sell. And mm-hmm. uh, when and, and and when the price of Bitcoin goes down, uh, people tend to hold on to it more for obvious reasons. So, and there's only one exception in that chart, which is just earlier on the lifespan of Bitcoin. It doesn't really matter. I think the important thing here is simply the 65% number and the trend. So the trend is that more people are holding on to it for a longer period of time. That makes a lot of sense because there's much more information out there on Bitcoin. I think understanding the asset is a lot different now than it was in 2017. I think a lot of people in 2017, myself included, when they saw it going to run up, they just said, this is just crazy. I I didn't understand the asset at all back then. I knew what it was, but Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. And I think a lot of people were in a similar situation and, you know, I made a reasonable profit on it. I was pretty happy with it at the time. Um, and so I think that historically people got out when the price was high. And now as people are starting to understand the asset more, we're going to see this number go higher and higher. I would not be surprised, depending on how the price movement goes, that we pick up, maybe get to 70% a year from now. It gets more and more difficult to pick up additional percentages as you um, go higher and higher. The law of diminishing returns is definitely in effect a bit. So it's this is a significant number. And, and you could also ask, well, you know, when the price goes down, maybe people get freaked out and just want to sell it. There is a percentage of people doing that for sure. We know that that exists, but it shows you the conviction of the hodlers. And one of my theories on Bitcoin was that, you know, eventually the amount of Bitcoin on is going to run out. Yeah, no, and that was the point I was going to make is that the, um, there's only really one way that, that this plays out, which is that as people continue to hold their Bitcoin and then you see all of these different um, moves towards adoption, um, you know, whether it's just random adoption at, you know, retail level or, or at the institutional level, but also when we're, you know, the things we were just talking about in terms of political adoption, um, as all of those things happen, and adoption increases, well, so does demand for Bitcoin. And if you've got a huge percentage of it that's not for sale, all that does is make the price of it go way up. And so I think, you know, all of these things kind of eventually have to come to some critical mass where there are a lot more people who want it than what's available. And that's when, you know, we really kind of start, you know, measuring things in Satoshi's. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and I think it also, I think when we 
when we take a look at the the overall news, we're really only we're we're not trying to find the best most positive stories each week. We're just reporting or we're just discussing whatever whatever things are there. And it seems like that, you know, certainly 90% plus of the stories are positive. Certainly when it comes to adoption. So with that, let's move on to some adoption unless you've got anything else on this one. Um, no, I think we'll move on. And um, I think it's just kind of become a, a regular thing in these in these discussions, which is that we're just going to go through, I mean, every week and, and keep in mind, we are filtering through these things and picking the ones that we think, you know, are, are the most interesting to talk about there every week. There are, you know, probably many times more uh, instances of adoption at different places than what we're talking about. I mean, these are just a handful of examples, but you know, every week we're seeing, I would say tens or dozens of, um, of new institutions doing something in this space. So with that, let's go through the ones that we like from the past week. Uh, the first one is Chipotle is now going to be accepting uh, crypto for payment in their stores. So now you can buy burritos with your Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Well, we've seen this before. It's more of a continuation of what we've seen before. I think we're going to see this. I think we're going to see a very significant amount of this over the next 12 to 24 months. And for a number of reasons, one, I think people, I think there's possibly been a mindset change that crypto, and we're essentially Bitcoin maximalists. I'm speaking for you, but you know, we, 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 our, our business is called Bitcoin butlers for a reason, not crypto yeah. dollars where we are I, I don't mess with the other stuff really right right but i i also while i personally am not really involved much with the other stuff and i i think bitcoin is a very unique thing all to itself uh the the crypto market and crypto in general does have a benefit in my opinion to bitcoin i understand a lot of people are going to get hurt you know a lot of these coins are going are going to go to zero but and that's that's just how things go. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more stores accept crypto payment. And I know Chipotle, we looked this up before we started the, the, the podcast tonight, that they're accepting 98 different cryptocurrencies. Right. I, I, don't even, I couldn't even, I don't think I can name, I don't think I can name 50, never mind 98. So... Their their thing is, look, we don't care how you want to pay for your food. We integrated with a platform called Flexa. They t- you, you pay with your crypto using their platform, and mm-hmm. we get fiat money. I, I guarantee you they're not storing money in Shiba or Doge. Or yeah, they're not going to be holding, you know, 98 different currencies on no. the sheet, um, especially when, you know, each one is the price of a burrito. So uh, what I think is pretty interesting about Chipotle um, is that, you know, when you go back and, and you look at a lot of the other stories like this about different retailers and merchants accepting cryptocurrency for payments, um, you find a lot of them are more luxury items or higher ticket items. Um, you know, we saw Tag Heuer watches, we saw car dealerships, we saw um, some, uh, some high-end fashion brands. 
Um, but I think when you see something like Chipotle, um, where you really, where you really are talking about everyday purchases, that is, um, that's really, you know, a medium of exchange application as opposed to, you know, Balenciaga being smart enough to realize that mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who made a lot of money in crypto, so they might as well be able to buy their stuff with it. So I think, again, this is, in my opinion, these types of, you know, retailers where the average ticket when you walk out is less than $20 is a big move in terms of um, actually using it as a medium of exchange. Yeah, I think it's also going to be targeted at more of a younger crowd where some of the, the luxury items may be targeted at more of a, I'll say like a middle age crowd. I think this, the, the Chipotle thing is aimed at more of like, call it like the millennials and younger and there's there's a lot of turmoil in the financial world right now. And well, I think we talked about this uh, possibly on the last episode, definitely on one of the last two, that a discretionary income is going to be harder and harder to come by over the next six to 12 months and into the future. And so it makes sense for a lot of these companies to be proactive and say, okay, well, if people can't pay with fiat money or dollars, how do we get them to come into our store and spend? I don't care if they paid in potato chips. If there's a company right. that's going to convert you know, by a bag of potato way, chips, right? You know, by the way, these are some of the people that have made you know the most money over the past five years. Well, I've I view the Chipotle thing a little differently. I'd say that for for people that may be on a tighter budget, and they say, okay, well. You know, Chipotle, I got two choices for for dinner or lunch. I can either make myself something, make make the food at home, or I can go out to eat. Well, it's less expensive usually to eat at home and to make it yourself. But I've got this Dogecoin that's worth, you know, $67.13. And Chipotle will take that. So I'll go there. I'll go pay with my Doge. And uh, I'll get myself a burrito, and I, I got to, I got to not really what I'm gonna call like spend my, I'm gonna call it like money, because I think people still view fiat being like money, and so I think we're gonna see a lot of retailers do this, especially if, you know, with the, especially with inflation and the cost of energy right now, not just gasoline, but electricity and things like that that uh, discretionary income is just simply going to be, there's going to be less discretionary income for people. And if, if people have something else of value that they can use to purchase your goods or services, and all you're doing is essentially connecting to some other kind of payment platform or payment rail, what's the downside? There and is. there isn't. And so because of that, you're going to see this. Uh, we've been predicting this, by the way. This is not something we haven't predicted. And we're just seeing it play out. We're seeing it come true. And we're going to see more and more of this. Agreed. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, the next one is Oman, country in the Middle East, uh, plans to reduce waste and oil production by Bitcoin mining. So the story here is that um, the Oman Investment Trust, which... I believe is state sponsored, 
um, is investing in a Crusoe energy project. Um, they raised $350 million. And the part of the deal is that they will open up an office um, in Muscat, Oman, and they are going to be able to use geothermal energy that Oman generates. Um, I'm sorry, they're going to use uh, natural gas flares. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to mine Bitcoin. So they've got a large amount of uh, wasted natural gas that they would normally burn off. Um, and now they're gonna be using that to uh, power Bitcoin mining machines. Yeah, so my question to you is, why isn't every oil producer doing this? And just to be clear what they're doing, and I don't understand all the mechanics, but they're essentially taking a a byproduct of the process, which are our gas flares, which go into the environment and are not good for the environment. And they're capturing that and they're using that to power Bitcoin miners. So they're basically taking, they're essentially converting their waste into money. Correct. Well, I'll ask you this question. If, uh, if you could, you know, today was trash day for us here. Um, if someone paid me, you know, a hundred dollars for each bag of trash I threw out, I'd be thrilled. That's essentially sure. what's happening here. The people are being paid not only just for the waste, but, but to be more environmentally conscious, which I don't know if that's their objective or not their objective. I know that, that people are certainly incentivized, uh, by money. And so to me, all of the oil producers worldwide should be doing this and probably will be doing this at some point because once again, similar to Chipotle, there's very little downside. And uh, I, I think in some places I've heard that it can, it can help them stay on some wells that wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't make financial sense if this wasn't there. So with that, yeah. we're going to see this everywhere. And that also leads us, I know, to our next story, which is another place, uh, Oman in the Middle East. This next story is in Kenya, Africa. Yeah, so um, this is Kenya's largest power provider. And, and by the way, one thing I wanted to mention about the, um, about the, the Oman story and uh, natural gas flares in general is that the amount of energy created by wasted natural gas flaring um, is it's a tremendous amount of energy. Like I, I think I read that it could power 80% of Africa, the amount of, you know, the amount of mm. wasted natural gas from flaring. So, so again, what we're seeing with Bitcoin are ways to transfer energy that would otherwise go unused into value. Um, so here with Kenya, similar type of, um, of thing where they're going to now um, offer. All right, Matt, we lost your feed there for a second. So I'm going to step in here. So what we're seeing is they're going to use their natural resources, their geothermal energy to power Bitcoin miners. Very similar to what we're seeing in, uh, we're seeing happen in El Salvador. And I think we're going to see the spread once again, worldwide, any countries that have any kind of geothermal energy or hydroelectric energy, anything they can use and convert it to money, uh, we're going to see. Absolutely. 
Um, all right, should I go to the next one? Anything else on Kenya? No, it's 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 just showing. And I think in some ways, it just shows how foolish New York is. That you see, you know, Oman doing something, you see Kenya doing something, and then you see New York doing something that's going in completely the opposite direction. Instead of being creative and and trying to find ways, if you're environmentally conscious, like how can Bitcoin mining help the environment? And I really believe that Bitcoin mining, if done correctly, and if if done on a very broad scale, will help the environment and possibly more importantly, will help uh, provide energy for the planet. Yeah, well, I think that um, one thing that I was just thinking about is that the speed at which you're seeing this happen, I think, is actually pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, it was almost, I would call it theoretical a year ago that you would see Bitcoin mining become, you know, powered by the energy of last resort. Um, meaning that there had always been this idea that, you know, possibly Bitcoin could mining could be done with, uh, by capturing otherwise wasted energy. And, you know, there were some good use cases for it. And I think, you know, you saw a lot happening with the natural gas stuff, but now, you know, it seems like every other week you're hearing about some major move towards not just renewable energy or sustainable energy. I don't know if solar and wind and hydro are, really going to be the driving factors of Bitcoin mining. I, I just don't know. But what you're seeing is that it's actually taking the energy that would otherwise go wasted or unused. And it's converting that into Bitcoin. So what we're seeing is stranded energy and otherwise wasted energy being put to good use. And that is, uh, I think it's going to spread very quickly. And if I owned an oil company, I would be calling upstream data and Steve Barber immediately and saying, how fast can you get a rig out here? Because there's no reason they're, they're, these oil companies are able to uh, extract value from their waste. And and, and that's why we're going to see more and more of this as this plays out and people start to see that um, that Bitcoin loves stranded and wasted energy. That's probably yeah. going to power a, a significant amount of it going forward. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I know I cut out for a second there, but um, I was talking about just this idea that, you know, it, it's stabilization of the grid is also something mm. that no other industry can really provide to the, the power companies. And so the ability to power up and down in order to help keep things stable is um, I think that's going to be really appealing to every energy company out there. Mm. I read an article. Company, to why wouldn't you want that? Yeah, I agree. And I read an article as actually today about the, uh, the benefit to nuclear the benefit that bitcoin provides to nuclear power operators that there have been a number of nuclear power plants power plants that have to shut down for economic reasons and if bitcoin was able to take that extra energy from those power plants then you can the the nuclear plant can provide the energy to the people and whatever's left over 
Bitcoin mining will be there to take. And so that means that you could have more nuclear energy, which is the, the cleanest, most dense form of energy you can get. Yeah. And so we're, we're unfortunately going in the wrong direction in the U.S. where we're seeing nuclear plants shutting down, not more plants being built. And if you care about the environment and care about clean energy and energy density, uh, you know, nuclear is outstanding. There have been very, very few negative events. I mean, people will focus on the outliers. And one of those outliers was Chernobyl, which was just a mismanaged plant in, in Russia in the 80s. Right. But but the almost the entire country of France, if not all of France, is run by nuclear energy. So yeah, overall, it's it, it is clean and safe. And and without even getting into any of the debates of whether those risks of, you know, catastrophe are worth it, it is it needs to be in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin can help it. Bitcoin mining can help it. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, Bermuda um, is trying to become a crypto hub. Um, again, we're also seeing these kind of economic zones pop up where different jurisdictions are trying to uh, create favorable uh, landscape for, for different crypto investments and, and infrastructure. Yeah, I think this is, I'm going to call it the four-minute mile story again that we had a first mover. Let's say that first mover was El Salvador. We had the next mover, which let's just say for this discussion was the Central African Republic. And, I, you know, there are there are people in other countries that also read the news and see what some of these, I'm going to call them s smaller nations are doing. And they there's there's a bit of a competition going on to attract uh, the crypto market and crypto innovation. And you could also put uh, Miami in that category. You could put mm -hmm. uh, England is talking about it. Those are much, well, Miami's a city, of course, and England's a, a pretty significantly sized country. So we're going to see more and more of this. I think each additional one is great. And I think it, you know, I think there is it will lead to more exponential growth in this and we'll see who the winners and losers end up being. But I'm always happy to see any kind of country coming on board and saying, we want, you know, our, we want our country to be a hub for digital assets. Yep. Um, we're just going to continue to see that just like, you know, with any other innovation, you see these economic zones pop up um even you know if you they could just be regional because there's a lot of things happening there it's an interesting thing to have you know jurisdiction saying now we're intentionally going to bring it here like if you look at silicon valley you know historically that just kind of popped up because of the types of things that were going on there um and then it kind of organically grew into a tech hub this is kind of the opposite where you've got these places saying we want to be that hub now come here and we'll give you an incentive to do it and so if it works, then you're just going to see tons more uh, countries saying, come do it here. Mm. What does that mean, you think, for Silicon Valley? Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I think that they're going to continue to. Uh,
All right. Well, it looks like you unfortunately froze up again. Uh, so I will say what I think is going to happen with uh, Silicon Valley, which I think it's going to lose a lot of its its dominance in the new technology space. And I think we're going to see it shared in other countries. All right, Matt, you're back. What do you think is going to happen to yeah. Silicon Valley? Um, well, I, I think I think we're probably saying similar things. I think you'll you'll see them continue to focus on more centralized types of Mm-hmm. corporate investments. Um, I think that right as of right now, you know, the investments into the crypto space are more s- spread out than just, you know, mm. Northern California. But um, I, I think that if they don't, you know, if the investments and the companies that are in that Northern California area don't really get on board with the decentralized types of investments then you know they're it's going to be uh it's going to be interesting to see how that that affects what's you know considered kind of the tech hub of the world mm-hmm. yeah i think they are uh we'll see i mean you know it's we'll see where they are in 10 years but uh there's people aren't waiting for silicon valley to get on board and let's be serious silicon valley is involved in a lot of the uh of the altcoins uh, I don't know how much Silicon Valley is doing Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin has no employees. Um, so Bitcoin doesn't doesn't need an office in San Francisco. But um, I think we're going to see more and more competition from these, as we see more and more competition from these countries and people trying to bring people in there and people offering all kinds of tax advantages and other economic incentives. Uh, that's going to have an impact. And, and maybe you could even argue that in, in similar ways that a lot of the digital assets are decentralized, certainly the best digital assets are decentralized, um, that maybe we don't have a centralized tech hub of Silicon Valley anymore. Maybe it's mm-hmm. maybe that's decentralized also. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, all right, let's go to our last one. Um, Sao Paulo FC. Uh, big Brazilian football club is now letting their fans buy tickets with uh, Bitcoin and other crypto. Yeah, so we're seeing this. We're seeing a pattern here. We're seeing these bigs now for, for I don't think Americans really understand how big, or they may have an idea how big soccer is in other countries. But for most of these other countries, they don't. They only have one sport, more or less. Well, explain explain for uh, for, you know, novice soccer fans how big of a club is sao paulo fc i do not know i cannot tell you how big sao paulo fc is uh i would have to look up their stats but they are one of the biggest clubs in brazil one of the things people don't really understand or or maybe surprised at is that while brazil has one of the best international soccer teams in the world their players Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Brazil is always one of the, the top teams in world cup and top teams in, in international play. The actual league in Brazil is not as big as like England, Spain, Germany, France, or Italy, which are the biggest right now. So, but, but I can tell you that, uh, the people in Sao Paulo, 
are obsessed with this team. I mean, you, the, the passion in the world of soccer is really unrivaled for any sport that we have in the U.S. And like I was saying just a minute ago, that everything's rolled up into one sport. They don't have hockey, baseball, basketball, football, sure. NASCAR. And, and not to you know. mention that Sao Paulo is one of the biggest cities in the world. I think. Mm-hmm. 30 million, I mean, it's 30 million it's, people there. It's, I would love to go to a game there. I'm sure it'd be complete madness, but we're seeing this from a number of these big sports teams. We're seeing it from, mm-hmm. I think the Oakland A's, you could buy a suite. That was one of the first thing I saw. You could buy like a, a suite at a game using Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this comes down to uh, two things. One is, well, I don't think discretion, I was going to say discretionary income, but I don't, I think people in Sao Paulo would, would pay to go to a game before they would eat a lot of times. I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's something that um, is difficult to understand just how passionate and fanatical people are. But, but it shows how this concept is being woven into everyday life for everyday people. Mm-hmm. So the fans of, of uh, the, the soccer team there, um, they don't, they're not necessarily like Bitcoin maximalists or big crypto investors or you know, hedge funds that own a lot of altcoins or whatever it is. They're just regular people. And it's a very popular thing in that city. And, the, these uh, institutions are opening their doors to really just another payment rail. I'm sure that that team, once again, isn't holding it on. They're not holding right. it on their balance sheet. I don't even know which cryptos they're taking, but they're a significant institution in Brazil. You know, I think even in that headline, they use the term powerhouse. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's the biggest soccer team in the biggest city in Brazil. Yeah, and, and I think if you have, I'm just kind of thinking this through right now, that if you have a a business that sells to consumers, there's really no reason for you not to be contacting one of those payment rails now, whether it's BitPay or any of the other ones that are Flexa, whatever else is available, and getting that set up for your business and starting to to make that happen sooner rather than later. I think everyone's going to be there later. And the amount of stories like this that are coming out on a weekly basis are kind of mind blowing. If you think about where we were, even just a year ago, we weren't seeing this. Sure. Yeah. I definitely be, um, seeing it five years ago. I'd be curious. Do you have any idea like what type of fee somebody like BitPay would charge to process transactions? It is, I do know, because I've seen it before, I believe what I've seen is that it's it's pretty much in line with Visa, the Visa network. I think it's like okay. 1.75% may have been something I saw, but it's not a, it's not a super high fee and it's not a super low fee, Yeah. right? It's not, oh. a, it's not a quarter of a percent or anything like that, uh, but... Uh, but it's something reasonable and something where when when uh, you look at it, you, it's you wouldn't really blink at what fee they're charging. At the same time, you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't be running special promotions to try and get people to do this. Well, my, the reason I asked was, you know, thinking about how much of this was really being done by the merchants because they would save money by doing it. I don't think much. 
I, I think it, I think part of it is a little bit of forward thinking. Like I said, if, if you own a business that sells to consumers, why aren't you doing it? Particularly if you have an online business, which is something that uh, we know the strike is doing with Shopify. Mm-hmm. But if you have an online, if you have a website, and I don't care what you're selling that website, and you're not taking this, I'm going to call it digital currency or these digital assets, this cryptocurrency, whatever you want to call it, you have to ask yourself why. Why wouldn't you be taking it? I don't care what your sure. your view of of I'm just pick the most obs- thing of the most obscure garbage coin you can imagine one that you say that thing will have no value six months from today but if someone wants to give that to me today and an intermediary is going to convert that immediately into fiat for a two percent fee let's say great that's and it's probably you know there's i i i don't think you have the same kind of chargebacks and things like that i think it's essentially um settled no chargebacks (laughs) right so, you know, really, does it really make any difference what Saul wants to pay with? Yeah, I, I don't think that it does. I think it's just like, you know, however many years ago, um, places didn't, you know, you couldn't call and pay, do a check by phone. You know, you had all of those innovations in financial instruments when you had that whole, you know, now that you can take a picture of a check and deposit it. Like it seemed at the time, like for a moment, it was kind of, you know, obscure. And then it became just something that everybody did, whether or not you get, whether or not companies take checks by phone very often, they all offer it. So, because why wouldn't you, it's just a way to capture, capture sales. Yeah. And I think we can also look at the other way, which is how many companies, if we, you know, how long ago was it that 30% or more of the people who went to the grocery store paid with a check. Oh yeah. I I remember when I was in high school, I worked in retail and receiving checks was extremely common. It was was actually, it was probably the most common, right? So I remember um, working in retail and like, if somebody paid by card, you'd have to take the, you know, credit card swiper out and, and run it across. And Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, you know, and a check is a terrible, terrible form of payment. One of the worst. So, you know, the, the merchants lost enormous amount, enormous amounts of money on that. And it was slow and it was just a, a really clunky, awful payment system. I almost never see a check anymore. In fact, if I see someone in front of me at the grocery store paying with a check, uh, I lose a lot of patients very, very quickly, (laughs) especially if they don't write out the store and pre-sign it and the date, you know, but, but when we, when we can, when we say that, okay, well, how does, you know, paying with Shiba Inu coin compare to paying with a check? And the answer is it's infinitely better. You don't really care what someone's giving you or how they're doing it. As long as you get money in your account and you get, you know, quick payment, it makes no difference. So we're going to see this, we're going to see this adoption really accelerate. And if we kind of go back to what we're seeing, I think with that, um, the bill that was introduced in the Senate this week Mm -hmm. and seeing that a, a country like the United States is taking this thing in a, 
thoughtful, calm, and measured way, and they're trying to come up with regulations to deal with it, I think we're going to see that really, I hope we see it really accelerate adoption. I think it would make sense that we see it really accelerate adoption on, on numerous levels. Yep. It's another big step. Mm -hmm. And I think we said on one of the, maybe in the last episode that, uh, I like to think that the world has adopted Bitcoin already. It just doesn't know it yet. And I think with things that we're seeing here, it's only going in one direction. The, 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 this, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. There's just absolutely no putting the genie back in the bottle. And even if one jurisdiction does it, uh, the others will capitalize on it. And I actually meant to do one other thing before the show started. I was going to look up any news for uh, Bitcoin and ban. Have you heard anything about banning Bitcoin over the past several weeks? Not that you really. can think of, and we keep up with the news. To we're paying attention to the news almost on a, you know, I mean, I minute by minute basis. But I'd be curious about doing that for the next episode. Like, you know, is is anyone even talking about bans? The only ban we heard about was New York with uh, a ban on on mining. But I just think that things are changing very rapidly and the the concept of what people are doing with this has probably already been absorbed into the social consciousness to some degree um it, you know obviously I, I don't know what the number of americans i think it was about 20 percent there are about 40 to 60 million Americans that have digital assets. Something like I might that. be, I might be a bit high on that, but it's a, it's a, it's a percentage. It's a, it's a real percentage of the population. And we'll see that go up and up and up and, and not to be a bit morbid, but you know, the, the people that are not into it are the older people. And as time moves on, um, they're not around anymore. And the younger people take over and there, there is no, in my opinion, there is no doubt of what people will be using for payment in 10 years. It won't be paper dollars, it won't be paper money anywhere. The rest of money is already digital, but there'll be these other monies, whether it'll be truly money separated for the, from the state, like Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I could see Bitcoin being used not really for spending necessarily, but just as like a savings account and people converting that to fiat when they need it in some kind of very efficient and fast way. But And so they would still technically be paying with dollars if we're in the US, not paying with Bitcoin. Uh, but I don't know. But but the uh, what's the saying? Uh, everything is uh, up and to the right. Right, the chart, the adoption charge is only up and to the right, and uh, you know each week we're seeing it and discussing it here, and um, I actually think it's helped me gain a lot of clarity on it, uh, just seeing it yeah, all I mean, compiled I, and discussing it with you. Yeah, I mean, I still I hesitate to really think about where it falls in terms of you know, the world's currency or stateless currency. I don't think that that's what we need to focus on at the moment. I, I'm more interested in 
in overall adoption. And in order for that to happen, it has to work within the existing system to an extent. It doesn't mean it can't work outside that system. It absolutely will, but it also has to work in it, at least until the point that there's enough critical mass for it to, you know, be its own entity in that sense. And so, mm. you know, I'm optimistic about it. I think it's eventually going to play a big part. And I think lightning is a huge experiment that we're going to have to see how that plays out. If lightning can truly be that rail and have, you know, the throughput that they claim it can, then that is going to be huge in my opinion. And that's just, mm. we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, you know, the the supply of Bitcoin on Lightning also hit a record high recently. It's at, I think, almost 4,000 Bitcoin on the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. And and I think most people, you know, I, I think that Lightning is Bitcoin's killer app. I think we're going to see Lightning adopted by a lot of small countries. We're, we're, we're going to see it adopted in quite a few places. I mean, the Lightning Network, which we've used just a little bit, uh, what I've seen with it, it's very slick. Nothing super special. It just works. You want to pay for something, you can pay for it. It's quick and easy. It's no more difficult than using any other form of payment. But I, I think that what you're saying is that you're showing the importance of the Sao Paulo Football Club and Chipotle, which is that in order for you to have adoption, you have to work within the current system. So if Chipotle wants to take your 98 cryptocurrencies 96 of which aren't going to be there in two years or won't have really any value in two years um that's great it, it all just helps it all moves things into the direction that i know you and i would both like to see it and and it's also moving towards the inevitable yep i agree with that all right great all right matt can you tell people where to find us please yeah, so you can find us at our website, btcbutlers.com, um, Twitter at btcbutlers. You can email us at info at btcbutlers.com. Our DMs are open. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Uh, we are on YouTube and pretty much every podcast platform. Um, if you need help with implementing best practices for owning Bitcoin, um, including buying, storing, inheritance, planning, and running your own node. Um, we would love to help you. And our inheritance plan is uh, unique and something that uh, we'd love to help anyone put in place. Or you can download the free guide at our website and put it in your place yourself. We're here to help you if you need the help. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And we appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you. Take care. Bye.